first part of chapter 3 of mutual aid a factor of evolution this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by enko mutual aid a factor of evolution by peter kropotkin first part of chapter 3 mutual aid among savages the immense part played by mutual aid and mutual support in the evolution of the animal world has been briefly analyzed in the preceding chapters we have now to cast a glance upon the part played by the same agencies in the evolution of mankind we saw how few are the animal species which live an isolated life and how numberless are those which live in societies either for mutual defence or for hunting and storing up food or for rearing their offspring or simply for enjoying life in common we also saw that though a good deal of warfare goes on between different classes of animals or different species or even different tribes of the same species peace and mutual support are the rule within the tribe or the species and that those species which best know how to combine and to avoid competition have the best chances of survival and of a further progressive development they prosper while the unsociable species decay it is evident that it would be quite contrary to all that we know of nature if men were an exception to so general a rule if a creature so defenceless as man was at his beginnings should have found his protection and his way to progress not in mutual support like other animals but in a reckless competition for personal advantages with no regard to the interests of the species to a mind accustomed to the idea of unity in nature such a proposition appears utterly indefensible and yet improbable and unphilosophical as it is it has never found a lack of supporters there always were writers who took a pessimistic view of mankind they knew it more or less superficially through their own limited experience they knew of history what the analysts always watchful of wars cruelty and oppression told of it and little more besides and they concluded that mankind is nothing but a loose aggregation of beings always ready to fight with each other and only prevented from so doing by the intervention of some authority hobbes took that position and while some of his eighteenth-century followers endeavoured to prove that at no epoch of its existence not even in its most primitive condition mankind live in a state of perpetual warfare that men have been sociable even in the state of nature and that want of knowledge rather than the natural bad inclinations of men brought humanity to all the horrors of its early historical life his idea was on the contrary that the so-called state of nature was nothing but a permanent fight between individuals accidentally huddled together by the mere caprice of their bestial existence true that science has made some progress since hobbes times and that we have safer ground to stand upon than the speculation of hobbes or rousseau but the hobbesian philosophy has plenty of admirers still and we have had of late quite a school of writers who taking possession of darwin's terminology rather than of his leading ideas made of it an argument in favour of hobbes views upon primitive men and even succeeded in giving them a scientific appearance 
Huxley, as is known, took the lead of that school, and in a paper written in 1888, he represented primitive men as a sort of tigers or lions, deprived of all ethical conceptions, fighting out the struggle for existence to its bitter end, and living a life of continual free fight, to quote his own words. Beyond the limited and temporary relations of the family, the Hobbesian war of each against all was the normal state of existence. Open footnote, 19th century, February 1888, page 165. Close been remarked more than once that the chief error of hobbes and the 18th century philosophers as well was to imagine that mankind began its life in the shape of small straggling families something like the limited and temporary families of the bigger carnivores while in reality it is now positively known that such was not the case of course we have no direct evidence as to the modes of life of the first men like beings we are not yet settled even as to the time of their first appearance geologists being inclined at present to see their traces in the pliocene or even the miocene deposits of the tertiary period but we have the indirect method which permits us to throw some light even upon that remote antiquity a most careful investigation into the social institutions of the lowest races has been carried on during the last forty years and it has revealed among the present institutions of primitive folk some traces of still older institutions which have long disappeared but nevertheless left unmistakable traces of their previous existence a whole science devoted to the embryology of human institutions has thus developed in the hands of bachofen maclennan morgan edwin tyler main post kovalevsky lubok and many others and that science has established beyond any doubt that mankind did not begin its life in the shape of small isolated families far from being a primitive form of organization the family is a very late product of human evolution as far as we can go back in the paleo-ethnology of mankind we find men living in societies in tribes similar to those of the highest mammals and an extremely slow and long evolution was required to bring these societies to the gentile or clan organization which in its turn had to undergo another also very long evolution before the first germs of family polygamous or monogamous could appear societies bands or tribes not families were thus the primitive form of organization of mankind and its earliest ancestors that is what ethnology has come to after its painstaking researches and in so doing it simply came to what might have been foreseen by the zoologists none of the higher mammals save a few carnivores and a few undoubtedly decaying species of apes open bracket orangutans and gorillas close bracket live in small families isolately struggling in the woods all others live in societies and darwin so well understood that isolately living apes never could have developed into men-like beings that he was inclined to consider men as descended from some comparatively weak but social species like the chimpanzee rather than from some stronger but unsociable species like the gorilla open footnote the descent of man end of chapter second pages sixty three and sixty four of the second edition close footnote zoology and paleoethnology are thus agreed in considering that the ban not the family was the earliest form of social life the first human societies simply were a further development of those societies which constitute the very essence of life of the higher animals open footnote anthropologists who fully endorse the above views as regards men nevertheless intimate sometimes that the apes live in polygamous families under the leadership of a strong and jealous male i do not know how far that assertion is based upon conclusive observation 
but the passage from Brehm's Life of Animals, which he sometimes referred to, can hardly be taken as very conclusive. It occurs in his general description of monkeys, but his more detailed descriptions of separate species either contradict it or do not confirm it. Even as regards the Cercopithex, Brehm is affirmative in saying that they nearly always live in bands, and very seldom in families. Open bracket, French edition, page 59, close bracket. As to other species, the very numbers of their bands, always containing many males, render the polygamous family more than doubtful further observation is evidently wanted. Close footnote. If we now go over to positive evidence, we see that the earliest traces of men, dating from the glacial or the early post-glacial period, afford unmistakable proofs of men having lived even then in societies. Isolated finds of stone implements even from the old stone age are very rare. On the contrary, wherever one flint implement is discovered, others are sure to be found in most cases in very large quantities. At a time when men were dwelling in caves, or under occasionally protruding rocks, in company with mammals now extinct, and hardly succeeded in making the roughest sorts of flint hatchets, they already knew the advantages of life in societies. In the valleys of the tributaries of the Dordogne, the surface of the rocks is in some places entirely covered with caves, which were inhabited by Paleolithic men. Lubbock Prehistoric Times, 5th edition, 1890. Close footnote. Sometimes the cave dwellings are superposed in stories, and they certainly recall much more the nesting colonies of swallows than the dens of carnivores. As to the fleet implements discovered in those caves, to use Lubbock's words, one may say without exaggeration that they are numberless. The same is true of other Paleolithic stations. It also appears from Lartet's investigations that the inhabitants of the Orinac region in the south of France partook of tribal meals at the burial of their dead, so that men live in societies and had gems of a tribal worship even at that extremely remote epoch. The same is still better proved as regards the later part of the Stone Age. Traces of Neolithic men have been found in numberless quantities, so that we can reconstitute his manner of life to a great extent. When the ice cap, open bracket, which must have spread from the polar regions as far south as Middle France, Middle Germany and Middle Russia, and covered Canada as well as a good deal of what is now the United States, close bracket, began to melt away, the surfaces freed from ice were covered first with swamps and marshes, and later on with numberless lakes. Open footnote. That extension of the ice cap is admitted by most of the geologists who have specially studied the glacial age. The Russian Geological Survey already has taken this view as regards Russia, and most German specialists maintain it as regards Germany. The glaciation of most of the central plateau of France will not fail to be recognized by the French geologists when they pay more attention to the glacial deposits altogether. Close footnote. Lakes filled all depressions of the valleys before their waters dug out those permanent channels which during a subsequent epoch became our rivers, and wherever we explore in Europe, Asia or America, the shores of the literally numberless lakes of that period, <coughs> whose proper name would be the Lacustrine period, we find traces of Neolithic men. They are so numerous that we can only wonder at the relative density of population at that time. The stations of Neolithic men closely follow each other on the terraces which now mark the shores of the old lakes, and at each of those stations stone implements appear in such numbers that no doubt is possible as to the length of time during which they were inhabited by rather numerous tribes. Whole workshops of fleet implements testifying of the numbers of workers who used to come together have been discovered by the archaeologists. 
Traces of a more advanced period, already characterized by the use of some pottery, are found in the shell heaps of Denmark. They appear, as is well known, in the shape of heaps from 5 to 10 feet thick, from 100 to 200 feet wide, and 1,000 feet or more in length, and they are so common along some parts of the sea coast that for a long time they were considered as natural growths, and yet they contain nothing but what has been in some way or other subservient to the use of men, and they are so densely stuffed with products of human industry that during a two days' stay at Milgard, Lubbock dug out no less than 191 pieces of stone implements and four fragments of pottery. Open footnote. Prehistoric times, pages 232 and 242. Close footnote. The very size and extension of the shell heaps prove that for generations and generations the coasts of Denmark were inhabited by hundreds of small tribes which certainly lived as peacefully together as the Fugian tribes which also accumulate like shell heaps or living in our own times. As to the lake dwellings of Switzerland, which represent a still further advance in civilization, they yield still better evidence of life and work in societies. It is known that even during the Stone Age, the shores of the Swiss lakes were dotted with a succession of villages, each of which consisted of several huts, and was built upon a platform supported by numberless pillars in the lake. No less than 24 mostly Stone Age villages were discovered along the shores of Lake Lehmann, 32 in the Lake of Constance, 46 in the Lake of Neuchâtel, and so on and each of them testifies to the immense amount of labor which was spent in common by the tribe, not by the family. It has even been asserted that the life of the lake dwellers must have been remarkably free of warfare, and so it probably was, especially if we refer to the life of those primitive folk who live until the present time in similar villages built upon pillars on the sea coast. It is thus seen, even from the above rapid hints, that our knowledge of primitive men is not so scanty after all, and that so far as it goes, it is rather opposed than favourable to the Hobbesian speculations. Moreover, it may be supplemented to a great extent by the direct observation of such primitive tribes as now stand on the same level of civilization as the inhabitants of Europe stood in prehistoric times. That these primitive tribes which we find now are not degenerated specimens of mankind who formerly knew a higher civilization as it has occasionally been maintained has sufficiently been proved by edwin tylor and lubbock however to the arguments already opposed to the degeneration theory the following may be added save a few tribes clustering in the less accessible highlands the savages represent a girdle which encircles the more or less civilized nations and they occupy the extremities of our continents most of which have written still or recently were bearing an early post-glacial character such are the eskimos and their congeners in greenland arctic america and northern siberia and in the southern hemisphere the australians the papuas the fragrance and partly the bushmen while within the civilized area like primitive folk are only found in the himalayas the highlands of australasia and the plateaus of brazil now it must be borne in mind that the glacial age did not come to an end at once over the whole surface of the earth it still continues in greenland therefore at a time when the littoral regions of the indian ocean the mediterranean or the gulf of mexico already enjoyed a warmer climate and became the seats of higher civilizations immense territories in middle europe siberia and northern america as well as in patagonia southern africa and southern australasia remained in early post-glacial conditions which rendered them inaccessible to the civilized nations of the torrid and subtorid zones they were at that time what the terrible elements of northwest Siberia are now and their population inaccessible to and untouched by civilization 
retained the characters of early post-glacial men. Later on, when desiccation rendered these territories more suitable for agriculture, they were peopled with more civilized immigrants, and while part of their previous inhabitants were assimilated by the new settlers, another part migrated further and settled where we found them. The territories they inhabit now are still or recently were subglacial as to their physical features. Their arts and implements are those of the Neolithic age, and notwithstanding their racial differences and the distances which separate them, their modes of life and social institutions bear a striking likeness. So we cannot but consider them as fragments of the early postglacial population of the now civilized area. The first thing which strikes us as soon as we begin studying primitive folk is the complexity of the organization of marriage relations under which they are living. With most of them, the family, in the sense we attribute to it, is hardly found in its germs. But they are by no means loose aggregations of men and women coming in a disorderly manner together in conformity with their momentary caprices. All of them are under a certain organization which has been described by Morgan in its general aspects as the Gentile Auckland Organization. Open footnote. Bachofen das Mutterrecht Stuttgart, 1861. Lewis H. Morgan, Ancient Society, all, all researchers in the lines of human progress from savagery through barbarism to civilization, New York, 1877. G. F. McLennan, Studies in Ancient History, First Series, New Edition, 1886. Second Series, 1896. L. Fison and A. W. Howitt, Camillara and Kunai Melbourne. These four writers, as has been very truly remarked by Giraud, Long, starting from different facts and different general ideas and following different methods have come to the same conclusion to bachofen we owe the notion of the maternal family and the maternal succession to morgan the system of kinship malayan and turanian and a highly gifted sketch of the main phases of human evolution to marlenon the law of exogeny and to fison and hobbit the quadro oak scheme of the conjugal societies in australia all for end in establishing the same fact of the tribal origin of the family when bachofen first drew attention to the maternal family in his epoch-making work and morgan described the clan organization both concurring to the almost general extension of these forms and maintaining that the marriage laws lie at the very basis of the consecutive steps of human evolution they were accused of exaggeration however the most careful researchers prosecuted since by a phalanx of students of law have proved that all races of mankind bear traces of having passed through similar stages of development of marriage laws such as we now see in force among certain savages see the works of post dargun kovalevsky lubok and their numerous followers lippert nook etc to tell the matter as briefly as possible there is little doubt that mankind has passed at its beginning through a stage which may be described as that of communal marriage that is the whole tribe had husbands and wives in common with but little regard to consanguinity but it is also certain that some restrictions to that free intercourse were imposed at a very early period intermarriage was soon prohibited between the sons of one mother and her sisters granddaughters and aunts later on it was prohibited between the sons and daughters of the same mother and further limitations did not fail to follow the idea of a gens or clan which embodied all presumed descendants from one stock open bracket or rather all those who gathered in one group close bracket was evolved and marriage within the clan was entirely prohibited it still remained communal but the wife or the husband had to be taken from another clan 
and when a gens became too numerous and subdivided into several gens each of them was divided into classes open bracket usually four close bracket and marriage was permitted only between certain well-defined classes that is the stage which we find now among the kamilawa speaking australians as to the family its first germs appeared amidst the clan organization a woman who was captured in war from some other clan and who formerly would have belonged to the whole gens could be kept at a later period by the capturer under certain obligations towards the tribe she may be taken by him to a separate hut after she had paid a certain tribute to the clan and thus constitute within the gens a separate family the appearance of which evidently was opening a quite new phase of civilization now if we take into consideration that this complicated organization developed among men who stood at the lowest known degree of development and that it maintained itself in societies knowing no kind of authority besides the authority of public opinion we at once see how deeply inrooted social instincts must have been in human nature even at its lower stages a savage who is capable of living under such an organization and of freely submitting to rules which continually clash with his personal desires certainly is not a beast devoid of ethical principles and knowing no rein to its patience but the facts become still more striking if we consider the immense antiquity of the clan organization it is now known that the primitive semites the greeks of homer and the prehistoric romans the germans of tacitus the early celts and the early slavonians all have had their own period of clan organization closely analogous to that of the australians the red indians the eskimos and other inhabitants of the savage girdle Open footnote. For the Semites and the Orients, see especially Professor Maxim Kovalevsky's Primitive Law open bracket, in Russian, close bracket, Moscow, 1886 and 1887. Also his lectures delivered at Stockholm, open bracket, Tableau des Origines et de l'Evolution de la Famille et de la Propriété, Stockholm, 1890, close bracket, which represents an admirable review of the whole question. CF also a post die gesslich genossenschaft der use oldenburg eighteen seventy five close footnote so we must admit that either the evolution of marriage laws went on on the same lines among all human races or the rudiments of the clan rules were developed among some common ancestors of the semites the orients the polynesians etc before their differentiation into separate races place and that these rules were maintained until now among races long ago separated from the common stock both alternatives imply however an equally striking tenacity of the institution such a tenacity that no assaults of the individual could break it down through the scores of thousands of years that it was in existence the very persistence of the clan organization shows how utterly false it is to represent primitive mankind as a disorderly agglomeration of individuals who only obey their individual passions and take advantage of their personal force and cunningness against all other representatives of the species unbridled individualism is a modern growth but it is not characteristic of primitive mankind Footnote. it would be impossible to enter here into a discussion of the origin of the marriage restrictions let me only remark that a division into groups similar to morgan's hawaiian exists among birds 
the young broods live together separately from their parents a like division might probably be traced among some mammals as well as to the prohibition of relations between brothers and sisters it is more likely to have arisen not from speculation about the bad effects of consanguinity which speculations really do not seem probable but to avoid the too easy precocity of like marriages under close cohabitation it must have become of imperious necessity i must also remark that in discussing the origin of new customs altogether we must keep in mind that the savages like us have their thinkers and savants wizards doctors prophets etc whose knowledge and ideas are in advance upon those of the masses united as they are in their secret unions open bracket and the almost universal feature close bracket they are certainly capable of exercising a powerful influence and of enforcing customs the utility of which may not yet be recognized by the majority of the tribe Close footnote. going now over to the existing savages we may begin with the bushmen who stand at a very low level of development so low indeed that they have no dwellings and sleep in holes dug in the soil occasionally protected by some screens it is known that when europeans settled in the territory and destroyed deer the bushman began stealing the settler's kettle whereupon a war of extermination too horrible to be related here was waged against them five hundred bushmen were slaughtered in seventeen seventy four three thousand in eighteen eight and eighteen nine by the farmers alliance and so on they were poisoned like rats killed by hunters lying in ambush before the carcass of some animal killed wherever met with open footnote colonel collins in phillips researches in south africa london eighteen twenty eight quoted by Waits, second three hundred and thirty four Close footnote. so that our knowledge of the bushmen being chiefly borrowed from those same people who exterminated them is necessarily limited but still we know that when the europeans came the bushmen lived in small tribes open bracket or clans close bracket sometimes federated together that they used to hunt in common and divided the spoil without quarrelling that they never abandoned their wounded and displayed strong affection to their comrades Liechtenstein has a most touching story about a bushman nearly drowned in a river who was rescued by his companions they took off their furs to cover him and shivered themselves they dried him rubbed him before the fire and smeared his body with warm grease till they brought him back to life and when the bushmen found in johann van der Walt a man who treated them well they expressed their thankfulness by a most touching attachment to that man upon footnote lichtenstein's reason im sudlichen africa second pages ninety two ninety seven berlin eighteen eleven close footnote Buchel and moffat both represent them as good-hearted disinterested true to their promises and grateful open footnote weights anthropology der nature volker second pages three hundred and thirty five sequence see also fritz die engeboren africa's breslau eighteen seventy two pages three hundred and eighty six sequence andre jar in south africa also w blake a brief account of bushman folklore cape town eighteen seventy five close footnote all qualities which could develop only by being practised within the tribe as to their love to children it is sufficient to say that when a european wished to secure a bushman woman as a slave he stole her child the mother was sure to come into slavery to share the fate of the child open footnote elise reclus geographie universelle thirteenth four hundred and seventy five the same social manners characterize the hottentots who are but a little more developed than the bushmen 
Lubbock describes them as the filthiest animals and filthy they really are. A fur suspended to their neck and worn till it falls to pieces is all their dress. Their huts are a few sticks assembled together and covered with mats, with no kind of furniture within. And though they kept oxen and sheep and seemed to have known the use of iron before they made acquaintance with the Europeans, they still occupy one of the lowest degrees of the human scale. And yet those who knew them highly praised their sociability and readiness to aid each other. If anything is given to a Hottentot, he at once divides it among all present, a habit which, as is known, so much struck Darwin among the few agents. He cannot eat alone, and however hungry, he calls those who pass by to share his food. And when Colben expressed his astonishment thereat, he received the answer, that is Hottentot manner. But this is not Hottentot manner only, it is an old but universal habit among the savages. Coben, who knew the Hottentots well and did not pass by their defects in silence, could not praise their tribal morality highly enough. Their word is sacred, he wrote. They knew nothing of the corruptness and faithless arts of Europe. They live in great tranquillity and are seldom at war with their neighbors. They are all kindness and goodwill to one another. One of the greatest pleasures of the Hottentots certainly lies in their gifts and good offices to one another. The integrity of the Hottentots, their strictness and celerity in the exercise of justice, and their chastity are things in which they excel all or most nations in the world. Footnote, P. Colben, the present state of the Cape of Good Hope, translated from the German by Mr. Medley, London, 1731, volume 1st, pages 59, 71, 333, 336, etc. Tasha, Barrow, and Modi, quoted in Waits Anthropology, Second, 335 sequence. Close footnote. Fully confirm Colben's testimony. Let me only remark that when Colben wrote that they are certainly the most friendly, the most liberal, and the most benevolent people to one another that ever appeared on the earth, open bracket, first, 332, close bracket, he wrote a sentence which has continually appeared since in the description of savages. When first meeting with primitive races, the Europeans usually make a caricature of their life, but when an intelligent man has stayed among them for a longer time, he generally describes them as the kindest or the gentlest race on the earth. These very same words have been applied to the Ostiaks, the Samoyeds, the Eskimos, the Dayaks, the Aleuts, the Papuas, and so on, by the highest authorities. I also remember having read them applied to the Tungusus, the Chukchis, the Sioux, and several others. The very frequency of that high commendation already speaks volumes in itself. The natives of Australia do not stand on a higher level of development than their South African brothers. Their huts are of the same character. Very often simple screens are the only protection against cold winds. In their food they are most indifferent. They devour horribly petrified corpses and cannibalism is resorted to in times of scarcity. When first discovered by Europeans, they had no implements but in stone or bone, and these were of the roughest description. Some tribes had even no canoes and did not know barter trade, and yet when their manners and customs were carefully studied, they proved to be living under that elaborate clan organizations which I have mentioned on a preceding page. Footnote. The natives living in the north of Sydney and speaking the Camilaroi language are best known under this aspect. Through the capital work of Lorimer Fison and E. W. Howitt, Camilla Roy and Kunai, Melbourne, 1880. 
See also A. W. Howitt's further note on the Australian class systems in Journal of the Anthropological Institute, 1889, volume 18, page 31, showing the wide extension of the same organization in Australia. Close footnote. The territory they inhabit is usually allotted between the different gens or clans, but the hunting and fishing territories of each clan are kept in common, and the produce of fishing and hunting belongs to the whole clan. So also the fishing and hunting implements open footnote, the folklore, manners, etc. of Australian Aborigines, Adelaide, 1879, page 11. Close footnote. The meals are taken in common. Like many other savages, they respect certain regulations as to the seasons when certain gums and grasses may be collected. One footnote. Grace journals of two expeditions of discovery in northwest and western Australia, London, 1841, volume 2, pages 237, 298. Close footnote. As to their morality altogether, we cannot do better than transcribe the following answers given to the questions of the Paris Anthropological Society by Loomholz, a missionary who sojourned in North Queensland, Open footnote. Bulletin de la Société d'Anthropologie, 1888, volume 11th, page 652. I abridge the answers. Close footnote. The feeling of friendship is known among them. It is strong. Weak people are usually supported. Sick people are very well attended to. They never are abandoned or killed. These tribes are cannibals, but they very seldom eat members of their own tribe. Open bracket. When immolated on religious principles, I suppose. Close bracket. They eat strangers only. The parents love their children play with them and pet them. Infanticide meets with common approval. All people are very well treated, never put to death. No religion, no idols, only a fear of death. Polygamous marriage, quarrels arising within the tribe, are settled by means of duels fought with wooden swords and shields. No slaves, no culture of any kind, no poetry, no dress, save an apron sometimes worn by women. The clan consists of 200 individuals divided into four classes of men and four of women marriage being only permitted within the usual clauses and never within the gents. For the Papuas, closely akin to the above, we have the testimony of G. L. Bink, who stayed in New Guinea, chiefly in Gilwing Bay from 1871 to 1883. They are sociable and cheerful. They love very much rather timid than courageous. Friendship is relatively strong among persons belonging to different tribes and still stronger within the tribe. A friend will often pay the debt of his friend, the stipulation being that the latter would repay it without interest to the children of the lender. They take care of the ill and the old. All people are never abandoned and in no case are they killed unless it be a slave who was ill for a long time. War prisoners are sometimes eaten. The children are very much petted and loved. Old and feeble war prisoners are killed, the others are sold as slaves. They have no religion, no gods, no idols, no authority of any description. The oldest man in the family is the judge. In cases of adultery, a fine is paid, and part of it goes to the negoria, open bracket, the community. Close bracket. The soil is kept in common, but the crop belongs to those who have grown it. They have pottery and no barter trade. The custom being that the merchant gives them the goods, whereupon they return to their houses and bring the native goods required by the merchant. If the latter cannot be obtained, 
example, European goods are written. Footnote. The same is the practice with the Papuas of Kaimani Bay, who have a high reputation of honesty. It never happens that the Papua be untrue to his promise, Finch says in Neguinea und Sener Behoner Bremen, 1865, page 829. They are head hunters, and in so doing, they prosecute blood revenge. Sometimes, Finch says, the affair is referred to the Raja of Namotot, who terminates it by imposing a fine. When well treated, the Papuas are very kind. Mikluko, Maclay, London, and the eastern coast of New Guinea, followed by one single man, stayed for two years among tribes reported to be cannibals and left them with regret. He returned again to stay one year more among them, and never had he any conflict to complain of. True that his rule was never under no pretext whatever to say anything which was not truth, nor make any promise which he could not keep. These poor creatures who even do not know how to obtain fire and carefully maintain it in their huts live under their primitive communism without any chiefs, and within their villages they have no quarrels worth speaking of. They work in common just enough to get the food of the day, they rear their children in common, and in the evenings they dress themselves as coquettishly as they can and dance. Like all savages, they are fond of dancing. Each village has its bola or balai, the long house, long maison or grand maison, for the unmarried men, for social gatherings, and for the discussion of common affairs. Again, a trait which is common to most inhabitants of the Pacific Islands, the Eskimos, the Red Indians, and so on. Whole groups of villagers are on friendly terms and visit each other en bloc. Unhappily, thirds are not uncommon, not in consequence of overstocking of the area or keen competition and like inventions of a mercantile century, but chiefly in consequence of superstition. As soon as anyone falls ill, his friends and relatives come together and deliberately discuss who might be the cause of the illness. All possible enemies are considered, everyone confesses of his own petty quarrels, and finally the real cause is discovered. An enemy from the next village has called it down, and a raid upon that village is decided upon. Therefore, thuds are rather frequent, even between the coast villages, not to say a word of the cannibal mountaineers, who are considered as real witches and enemies, though on a closer acquaintance, they prove to be exactly the same sort of people as their neighbors on the sea coast. Open footnote. <coughs> Is Bestia of the Russian Geographical Society, 1880, pages 161, sequence. Few books of travel give a better insight into the petty details of the daily life of savages than these scraps from Macle's notebooks. Close footnote. End of the first part of chapter 3. Recording by Enko. If you would like to send me an email, you can reach me at enkobilal at yahoo.com. That's E-N-K-O-B-I-L-A-L -L at yahoo.com.